so we we scampered up the north side of the valley and uh, uh finally you know, but that's a thousand feet though i mean how did you get the thousand feet was that all did you have uh any you know repelling gear or whatever was that all just done by foot and trails and um, foot and trails i mean it was it was definitely pretty vertical but not so vertical that you couldn't climb in and out um but going down a thousand feet is a hell of a lot easier with all your gear than going up a thousand feet. Well, you know, when I had, uh, you know, the ground force, ground force commander fire into the radio, get your ass out of that valley. You're stopping us from calling in air support. That was motivation. Yep. Oh, yeah. But when I got out the other side, I realized that I had screwed up because guys were like, what in the fuck were you thinking? Um, the ground for, you know, our, my boss, the XO came up and just ripped into me. And instead of humbling, instead of humbling once again, and just saying, wow, you're right. I made a, made a bad call. I didn't, I fought against it. I was like, you know, Hey, I made the right call. I ran to the sound of the guns. I went to support guys. And, uh, yeah, I think they were so, so this was the perfect storm. So tactical errors, drinking, me butting heads with my platoon chief repeatedly, and now this bad call became the the storm, and my XO was like, "Sending you back to the rear to meet the commanding officer." So I got to uh, fly back to uh, from down south in uh, Kandahar back to Bagram to meet with our leadership and the commanding officer of the team, and um, really a rock bottom moment for me. Tell, now tell us about that. What, what's going through your head? When did it finally hit you that? Oh geez, I fucked. I fucked the one. I fucked it this time. Uh, probably in the meeting when I met with the commanding officer, and the uh, the the troop had flown back at this point. So I, I I got back, and there were a couple of days before the troop finished that mission, and and flew back, flew back, and uh, and you know you know I sat in a meeting with the commanding officer, our command master, command master chief, senior leaders of our team, including my chief and my 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 OIC, uh, the ground force commander, and they basically were all saying, hey you know, you're dangerous, you know, guys don't want to work with you. And that's a really big blow in our community. I mean, that's the biggest blow you can have. I'm not, I mean, you don't measure up that you're dangerous, that guys don't, guys don't want to work with you. Um, so that. <laughs> so you're maverick to the Iceman then. I, I was. Um, <laughs> Speaking of Top Gun. But, yeah. um, you know, I went back to my room. They told me they'd let me know their decision the next morning. And I went back to my room and I put a gun in my mouth and I almost killed myself that night. I was so. Mm. And uh, what stopped you? My wife and kids, the picture, picture of my kids on the desk in front of me. And uh, and I think the big guy above, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing? Absolutely. Like, what kind of message do you leave for them? And uh and thankfully, I hadn't quit anything at that point in my life. And I was like, you know, if you do this, you're you're quitting. It's the ultimate, the ultimate form. So I went and found, and I frequently speak on this. I speak to law enforcement, fire, and military. I went and sought out help. And it's amazing to me in our community how I did the right thing. I went and got help. Um, but so many of us try and deal with things by ourselves, which is the exact opposite when we're suffering from mental health problems. And and. Um, you know, we don't clear room, clear room. So, you know, first thing police do when they're in an issue is they call for backup, you know, fire don't, you know, clear buildings by themselves. Yet when we're struggling mentally, we try and do it on our own. And I was, you know, going down that same road. So, you know, Murph and I have talked about this many times and uh, probably, I don't know, your experience is a little different because military being in theater, but I've lost more friends in law enforcement to suicide than I did line of duty. Yeah. And I can think back to the, and it's like, (laughs) 
you know, actually one of the guys, when I was a trooper, one of the guys out of my class went to a federal agency years later, um, almost did it in a hotel room. I mean, had a shotgun, pulled away at the last second, lost part of his eye. Um, and, and I just think about all the people I knew that, and to your point, you go, what, and we've talked with several guys, Lou Velosi being one of them. You know, we talked about how close Lou was. We've talked to other guys um, that were half an ounce away. You know, they were, they got to one, two, and almost to three. And I said, what stopped you between two and three? You know, and uh, that was uh, not Nate, but that was um, um, uh, uh, Kevin Holtry. Kevin Holtry. Out in uh, Boise. Boise. Yeah. I mean, he's in, he's ended up, he's, we, we I'm we not sorry, Brian Brian, yeah, it is Kevin Holtry. Kevin Holtry and Brian Holland was the yeah. other one. Um, he was in, when we were interviewing, he was in so much pain. We had to stop. I mean, just the, just to watch him, he's, he's double amputee now, um, paraplegic. The, the bullets hit his spine and everything. He's lost both of his legs. And we, Murph and I were talking, one of the hardest interviews we ever did because of, you watched how much pain he was in. I mean, it almost put me in tears. And this guy was a half an ounce away from uh, taking it all. But here's a guy in a wheelchair waking up every 90 minutes at a minimum, even if when he's sleeping, because he can't take the pain. And yet this guy's still here. And I'm going, man, if you can do it, you know, I, I got no excuse. But you know what? And and I think you've got the same thing here, Jason. The the sense of humor, it, it kind of goes along with being humble, learning how to be humble. And self-deprecating humor gets me through a lot, uh, especially when you're in front of an audience speaking, because it, it, there's nothing special about us. It's just that we were able... You know, I couldn't do what you did, and and you probably could do what I did, but <laughs> I'm gonna say you couldn't. Um, but it, and and the same thing with uh, uh, Kevin when he said you know, we were talking about how big a man he was. I said, "Well, you're like six four. He said, "No, I'm not. I'm three eight. I don't have any fucking legs." You know, and I'm thinking, <laughs> you got to have a sense of humor to say something like that yeah, in that kind of condition. Humor plays a big part. Yeah, although sometimes, man, when you're in, you know, man, I, I was at rock bottom, bottom find humor in those situations but then you got to depend on other people to help you and you and that's what i talk about now and and that's where you do have to we tie ourselves so tightly to this identity whether it's the seal or the badge or fire helmet or i mean even in life we all tie ourselves to whatever title we have and uh th that became that moment kind of became a, a little bit of a launch point it, it still took some time took some time before i really kind of grew up and humbled myself and came to grips with you know uh, 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 a title and this badge, this pin you wear, medals, whatever they are, none of that shit makes you anything. You know, the, the individual does and how they carry themselves and how they lead. And that became a new journey. And that's where everything kind of changed. Everything I speak on now is built around that, that journey, journey from getting myself in trouble. You know, they didn't end up taking my trident. Um, thankfully, my, my commanding officer uh, believed in me. And gave me a second chance, but it, it came with some uh, some growth opportunities. Yeah, that's a euphemism. <laughs> yeah, in the beginning, I just saw it as punishment. Um, but um, you know, I, I they took away any awards I was supposed to receive from that deployment. Um, I had to sign an official, well, an unofficial letter of reprimand. That if it had gone in my officer record, would have ended my career. It went into the safe of the CO, and he said, "Hey, you do a great job. After two years, this gets shredded." And then they sent me to Ranger School. That's how I ended up going to Ranger School. Mm -hmm. That was punishment going to Ranger School. It was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why? Yeah. No, seriously, I'm, I'm joking. Was that punishment, or was that was that designed to uh, it was a growth teach it was you a growth some opportunity? 
growth opportunity. And what was the growth opportunity you were supposed to learn from going to ranger school? Uh, to humble myself. You know, and if anybody that out there has been through ranger school, the great thing about ranger school is, you know, there are guys in ranger school who have been in for 10, 15 years. You have 05s that go through ranger school, through ranger school, you have um, SF Gaff guys, uh, and none of that matters. You don't wear any of that stuff when you go through ranger school. Everybody's the same. And it's like airborne and stuff too. Nobody cares who right. you are. You either make well, it or you don't. Ranger school is a leadership school. That's what a lot of people don't realize. At, at, at the end of the day, everyone has a spot as a leader and you will, sometimes you're a follower, sometimes you're a leader and it, and it does what you've done or what your past is. And it, I'll tell you what, it was very smart of my commanding officer to send me there. I really needed it. And, uh, it, it humbled me and changed, um, my mindset for the future. And it really became the base of a lot of the stuff that I speak on. Um, you know, I'm, you know, I call it the three rules of leadership, leaders, lead yourself, lead always. I teach balance and I got to peak performance, the five key areas where leaders should be balanced. Uh, all these things really started to grow out of ranger school. And as I move forward in my career from there. Rangers lead the way. There's a reason yeah. why. Uh, but let's go back. I want to go back to that morning when they brought you back in. In your heart of hearts, what did you think was going to happen to you when they brought you back in? You know, I wasn't sure. Um, the chap chaplain uh, gave me some pretty good advice, and it's something that I talk to and talks that so often when we have these rock bottom moments in our lives, we convince ourselves it's the end. But if you're willing to follow that path, there is a there is a new beginning. You know, it may be the end of one part of your life, but the new beginning. So he said to me, you know, no matter what, no matter what happens, if they take your trident or if they don't take your trident, you know, tomorrow's a new beginning. It's up to you for what you're going to do with it. And it was really great advice. So, um, I didn't, I didn't know what to expect going into that meeting, and and I'd love to tell you that there was a sigh of relief, um, and and there was a little bit, but I also was also was bitter. I was bitter. I was angry, uh, still, and it took. It took it took into rainbow before I finally. Who were you angry at? Myself. I felt like I was a victim. I, I still believed that I had made the right call. I still had failed to take a look at. Uh, I was blaming everybody else, which is a common problem when we get ourselves in trouble. You know, I I, I blame my chief. I I blame guys. You know, I I did what was right. I ran to the sound of the guns. You know, I you know look at me. I'm heroic. And uh, you guys are just throwing me under the bus. And all of that was bullshit. All of those were lies. Um, you know, and it was finally when I got to ranger school that I came to grips and was like, hey, man, <laughs> you know who's to blame for you being here? This guy. You are. You're the one that, that all these things, things let up. Now, in relation to work, we want to start getting into uh, September 13th, 2007. But in, before we get into that, in relation to that date, which is obviously kind of one of the reasons we're here, you're uh, come to Jesus. You're going to Ranger School. When did that happen in relation to 2007? Uh, it was uh, almost two years. Almost two years. All right. So you had some time to get things squared away, get your head squared away. When you came out of Ranger School, you said you, you had this realization. How did that change you as a leader? A lot more humble. Um, a lot. And it, and it, you know, I didn't come back to the SEAL teams after Ranger School, and guys were super excited to have me. Um, you know, in our community, your reputation precedes yourself. And, uh, my, and, uh, my, and I had, uh, my new nickname was Rambo Low Red. Uh, guys didn't want Rambo Red in their platoon. That's not a compliment. You know, a lot of people may think that's cool out there, but Rambo was an individual. Special operations is absolutely dependent on being an effective member of a team. 
So I had to earn back the trust and respect of the guys that I was supposed to lead. And thankfully, I had an amazing boss and mentor and mentor gave me a lot of opportunities. He said, I don't care, care what happened in Afghanistan. He said, you know, I'm going to I'm going to call on you to lead. And when I call on you to lead, I need you to lead. And other times I need you to follow. But he said, you know, you just focus on you. And that became lead yourself, lead others, lead always, no matter what's happening. I just showed up. I just showed and slowly tried to win back, uh, you know, the trust and respect of the guys. And over, guys, and over, you know, over time, it happened. I mean, over about a year, you know, by the time we finally got slotted to deploy to Iraq, Iraq was a super volatile place in 06, 07. And uh, only the top ranked platoons were the ones that were getting sent to Iraq just because uh, they knew you were going into the shit, shit. Uh, our troop got selected for that, that, and it was the best troops I've ever been a part of. So definitely kind of the finishing for me um, as a, you know, uh, an officer kind of rebuilding myself, figuring out how to lead in the combat theater and, and very chaotic, you know, combat environment. Um, you know, we were, we were conducting operations almost every night by the time, by the time we got yeah, it's funny you were talking about not funny, but you know, you're talking about Fallujah, Iraq. I mean, there are many places that were such hot spots where if there was going to be action, it was going to be those places. So let's start setting the stage now for September 13th, 2007, uh, Fallujah, Iraq. Um, what was going on at that time? Where were you guys stationed at? So kind of tell us the give us the groundwork that lays up to you being in Fallujah just in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I think in 2007, definitely in 06, 07, Afghanistan had slowed down quite a bit. The SEAL teams actually pulled out of Afghanistan in the uh, at the end of 05, which is when I left Afghanistan, into 06. I'm not sure when we went back. It might have been 07, 08. But things were definitely ramping up in Iraq. I mean, Iraq was devolving into chaos. Um, you know, on multiple fronts, uh, you had obviously in, in center Iraq around Baghdad, you had this heavy Iranian influence. So, I mean, really, we're almost fighting a proxy war with Iran, um, through Muqtada al-Sadr and, uh, and the Shia, um, you know, the Shia, uh, individuals that were there. Um, in Western Iraq and the Anbar province, you had obviously Al Qaeda and the insurgency that was occurring around that. Um, the heaviest fighting probably happening out there in Anbar, which of course your major hotspots would be Fallujah, Abania, and Ramadi. So. Hey, Jay, real quick question. You said the SEALs pulled out. Um, was that just the SEALs? Was that other special operators? Um, is that because things had slowed down or did they have a of strategic change in direction? Why, why the break? Uh, McRaven pulled us out because uh, there was a lot of political pressure. And I write about this in my book, The Trident. Things had slowed down. There was tremendous political pressure that was occurring from the senior leadership, uh, the ambassador, the Afghan government, about the way we conducted special operations. And they did not want us doing nighttime, fast roping, breaching, they wanted us to, um, they were implementing something called soft knock operations. They wanted us to, A, alert village elders 24 hours in advance that we were coming to take down the target, and B, go knock what? on the door. Oh, yeah. Uh, these were things that were actually happening. So I can't speak for the other special forces, but McRaven, uh, at the end of that deployment in October, and I'm not sure exactly when it occurred, shortly thereafter of 05, he said, I'm pulling my SEALs out. You're taking away all their strategic tactical advantage. I'm not putting them in danger. 
you know, for this. So there was at a minimum a year, maybe a little bit longer that we were out of Afghanistan and just focused in Iraq. I, I didn't know that. I mean, Steve, that that's the equivalent. Of, well, that's the equivalent of telling a target, "Hey, we're going to serve a search warrant on you tomorrow. Don't destroy anything. Don't don't set up an ambush. But hey, we got a warrant. We're going to come out and knock on your door and say surprise tomorrow morning at six. Except you're going into an environment where you know in Iraq they're going to have weapons. You know, a drug trafficker typically does, but if he may not use them, whereas where you guys are, hell, they're going to use them. Oh man, it was uh, it was a big fear. Um, you know, you let someone know ahead of time. I mean, you know, we we, we often talked about a crew serve weapon at the end of a hallway, and yeah, you come knock on the door and they just mow everybody down. So um, thankfully, McRaven. Uh, you know, I, I personally am a fan of Bill McRaven. Um, he was the one star, totally in charge of all seals at that time, and uh, I, I thought, uh, you know, personally, I thought it was a great call, and you know supported it. I mean, I was a young leader back then, but obviously for us, it didn't change. I mean, we weren't slotted to go to Afghanistan after that. I rolled into my next platoon. This is about the time I got myself in trouble. I think we talked about all that. So I had bigger things to worry about, like saving my career and growing up um, and, and, you know, trying to stay in the SEAL team. So that was really my focus. Um, Typically, what happens in any SEAL team, I can't speak for the rest of special operations, but within the SEAL teams, um, uh, at some point, usually the beginning of the year, a deployment order is issued and they say, these are the hot spots in the world. This is where we're going to send guys. And then obviously there's contingency operations that spring up where guys get sent. Uh, in, in this case, um, wh- and what happens is whoever is in the, the, the pipeline, uh, whoever is on that deployment cycle, it is up to the leadership to decide who's going to go where. And obviously, wherever the hottest spots are, typically it's going to be your best troops. The, you know, if the CO has issues or concerns, he's not going to send his top guys. He's going to send. Uh, he's not going to send his worst guys or guys he has concerns with. He's going to send his best guys. So typically, the decision on where you're going doesn't occur until only a few months prior to deployment, and then you'll be notified. And that's what happened with us. We found out, hey, um, you know, one of our troops was going to Baghdad, and we were heading out to um, the Ambar province. Both, I would say, were equally as dangerous. I mean, what was happening in our city was just imploding. And obviously, uh, 06 and 07 in the Ambar province was some of the toughest fighting. I mean, if you look, if you read uh, Jocko's book and they talk about the fighting that they encountered, Chris Kyle, that was in the summer and fall of 06, falling into, uh, moving into 07. And that's when we arrived and um, we, we got there in April of 07, the very first deployment we did, or I'm sorry, the very first mission. I wasn't there yet. I hadn't arrived. Um, we had sent uh, our first wave of guys they had linked up with our other SEAL team, and we did frequently when we're doing what we call turnover operations. You have the outgoing team and the incoming team, and we blend guys so so that you know you guys know the deal. So hey, you've been in country for six months. I'm going to shadow you on this mission, so now you can share your information and say, hey, this is what's dangerous and stuff like that. So on the very first mission, they went into Karma, Iraq, uh, going after a high level Al Qaeda leader, and and got into a Fierce, fierce firefight. Um, this is the firefight that Senior Chief Mike Day was shot 27 times 
and uh, and they thought he was dead. Petty Officer Clark Swedler was killed. We have a couple of other guys that were um, wounded. One of our Iraqi, one of the Iraqis was killed. And the firefight was so intense and that the platoon pulled back to the next house because they couldn't even make entry from the amount of fire. And, uh, and nobody was saying anything. They thought everybody was dead. And Senior Chief Mike Day came, um, came to from unconsciousness and killed three of the terrorists on his own before he managed to get up after being fragged and shot 27 times and cleared the rest of the house and called the guys and said, hey, come get me. They're all dead. Um, unfortunately, we lost Mike this year to suicide. He took his life in oh, March. Uh, he was uh, awarded the Navy Cross. I personally think it should have probably should been, have been the Middle of Honor. Honor. But Mike was a tremendous warrior and someone who really fought the demons of war when he came home. But uh, that was the very first mission on our deployment uh, with my troop. I showed up a little bit after that. And, and it was basically like that. Uh, for most of that deployment, um, we were hitting targets uh, in Fallujah, throughout Ambar, and frequently going back into Karma and uh, got into multiple firefights, um, had guys wounded. Um, in June, we took down a very complicated target uh, that we had 11 women and children on in the middle of this gunfight that we ended up having to pull inside. Uh, we had enemy barricaded on the roof with a machine gun and dropping grenades down on us. Uh, and we ended up having to navigate all this and move these women and children, plus our wounded, to another house where we called in an airstrike um, on that house and eliminated those guys. On that same deployment in July in Baghdad, uh, those guys were hit in Sadr City, uh, our, our sister troop, and we lost uh, three guys, uh, one of our guys that was severely wounded, um, ended up losing his leg from that. And this was an Iranian EFP. So, you know, these, these insidious devices that were designed to punch through our armor. That's what I wanted you to talk about. There's IEDs, improvised explosive device, but the Iranians, the Quds Force, the IRGC, these guys started coming over with these ESP, EFPs, explosively formed penetrators. Tell everybody how much more insidious those things are as compared to IEDs. Yeah. So an IED is just a big explosion. Although, um, IEDs, depending on the vehicle we, we were using, we had not gotten the MRAPs at this point. The MRAPs were the larger special operation designed, uh, mainly blast-proof vehicles. I don't want to say they, they were specifically designed um, to try and thwart some of the effects of IEDs. Um, we were still running in the armored Humvees, um, so they were a little more susceptible. So a really big IED could take this thing out. If you had a 2,000, 5,000 pound IED, I mean, it could definitely do a lot of damage. Um, you still could survive because we were armored. Um, the Iranians developed something called the EFP, an electron, uh, an electric. Explosively formed penetrator. Thank you. Explosively formed penetrator. That and was who knew? I, I've never been a SEAL and I knew this shit. I mean, how does this shit happen? Because well, he's a nerd. Right? Too many acronyms. He's a nerd. But <laughs> he's what nerd. it was designed to do is it, it created this molten copper slug that would punch right through our armor. And when it went through our armor, it created this vacuum inside the vehicle that would fill it with fire and, and do devastating damage inside and obviously punch right through the vehicle. I know guys... Um, Sergeant First Class Mike Slitz is a friend of mine. He was a ranger. He was the vehicle commander in a vehicle that took an EFP that went right through the driver. Mike was working on the computer, and uh, the, the projectile went through both forearms, 
um, killed everyone in the vehicle. Uh, Mike miraculously it hit the door, the door popped open and he fell out of the vehicle on fire. It's the only thing that saved his life, but it burned over 90% of his body. He is an amazing, and he lost both hands. Um, although if any of you are looking for inspiration, uh, he is an amazing guy. He works for the Gary Sinise Foundation now. But these things were insidious. And it's so, you know, I was so glad, um, you know, I'm not the, the, I'm not always the biggest fan of Trump. Um, I, I, I don't always like the way he leads. But I tell you what, when he killed the Iranian uh, Soleimani, Man, that was spot on. That guy had so much American blood on his hands and everybody was so upset and up in arms. And I was like, you have no idea the amount of American. Yeah, but what the hell was he doing in Iraq? He was he was in Iraq. What the hell is an Iranian head of intelligence doing in Iraq? I'm probably following up what they started way back in 2005, you know, 2006, whenever they started, you know, uh, fighting their proxy war. So that was the battlefront. That was the the battleground, the environment that we were fighting in. And uh, definitely very complicated. Although on the flip side, it was everything that you ever dreamed of doing as a SEAL. Um, for me, after I got myself in trouble, um, it was I was able to put a lot of the leadership lessons into play uh, and, and learn, you know, at the end of the day, you know, in the special operations community and the law enforcement community, um, you know, back in garrison, that doesn't matter. All that matters is how do you lead and how do you operate in combat? I had screwed that up in Afghanistan. So to be able to figure that out and to have done a good job and to be running with such an amazing troop of individuals in Iraq was um, pretty amazing. And we we did a lot of great work. Um, you know, we, we estimate that we, um, uh, I think we captured over 120 mid-level, uh, mid-level and, and senior Al-Qaeda insurgent. And we aided a whole bunch of others on their way, the ones that obviously didn't want to get captured. Ah. Allahu Akbar, brother. Um, yeah. Well, you, you so, know, you mentioned, you mentioned Admiral McRaven earlier. That was, uh, that shows you what a leader is there, that he's got the stones to stand up and pull his people out when they start putting ridiculous restrictions on you that, that make it so you cannot successfully do your job and bring our people home. You know, the the politicians making those damn rules or the idiots that are making those rules probably have never been out in a war zone, probably never had a bullet fired at them and have no clue what they're they're putting you guys into. So hats off to, to Bill McRaven for uh, standing up and doing the right thing there. And, you know, Jay, that's the other thing. Uh, real quick, talk about that, too. It, it follows on to that. All these ROEs, these rules of engagement, I mean, one of the things I heard from people is that it was so crazy. There were different ROEs depending on where you were, and it was like, that kind of got, a, I mean, not only with those things that you're talking about, McRaven was pushing back against, but multiple ROEs. It's like, how did you know what you were supposed to do at any given point? Well, and they would change. Uh, I mean, I talk about in my book one night where our the ROE and our, um, uh, our signaling with other forces had changed, and I screwed it up. I should have caught it, and I didn't. I missed it. And uh, could have potentially created a blue on blue incident when we came up against a Marine patrol on a night, you know, nighttime mission that occurred in uh, Fallujah. So some of it, you got to be, you got to have leadership that's really savvy. You got to be aware. Uh, some of it is, uh, thankfully, when we were in Iraq, I thought the rules of engagement were pretty good in our favor. Um, you know, if we saw someone that we deemed a threat, 
you know, we were able to engage them. I mean, the enemy knew our, our tactics. They knew our rules of engagement. So frequently they would shoot at you, drop a gun, and then calmly walk someplace else because, you know, they would know that, hey, if we don't have a weapon. So, you know, you had to get really good at, at hey, that's the same guy. And, um, you know, and thankfully, I think that most of our guys in special operations, I mean, we obviously want to kill bad people, um, you know, and for anybody out there that that offends you, I hate to tell you, there are evil people in this world. There's no amount of education or hugging them that's going to change their hatred and, and violent ways. Uh, and those people, and usually, thankfully, those people were the ones who fought back the most. Uh, when we, I, I write this in my book, that there were probably three groups of people we encountered in Iraq. Um, the, the larger group were opportunists. Uh, in a war zone, the economy has collapsed. So normal jobs, you know, the normal day-to-day economy kind of is going away. A lot of people have lost their jobs because there's an active war happening. So what would happen is Al-Qaeda or the insurgency would come around and say, hey, I'm going to give you $50 to go put this IED at the end of the road. And many of them did it because they needed the money. They didn't, they weren't sympathetic to the cause, but they needed to feed their family. So when we would roll up on somebody like that, I mean, they were, (laughs) they were crying and whining and I, I love George Bush. I love America. I'm really sorry. And obviously we would wrap them up and, and they would have to, uh, we would collect the evidence and turn it over to the Iraqis and it was up to the Iraqis side what to do with them. The second class were sympathizers, and the la- and those guys usually put up a fight, but they weren't usually willing to fight to the death. Most of those guys we ended up capturing. The third group were the diehards, the zealots. That was about the 10%, and they fought to the death every time. Well, and room temperature is a good look for some of those guys, but you just mentioned something we wanted to tie into. We talked about this in one of our pre-calls. And you talked about turning evidence over to the Iraqis. You guys also had to now become kind of conversant in some law enforcement tactics, sensitive site ex- exploitation. And I know uh, I'm, I'm thinking about like the bin Laden raid. You know, you raid that. You've only got a limited amount of time, but you've got you've got to exploit that site, you know, hard drives, whatever it is. You know, there's a lot of things you got to do. So tell us, too, about as as we're getting into this, what's some of the training you got on sensitive site exploitation? And, you know, what did that entail? Because at some point, if you want to really, quote, try these people or put them on trial, um, you've got to do some things by the rules. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And so most operations were kind of two part. You would have the initial assault portion, which was a little more dynamic, a little more kinetic. Uh, But once the target was secure, then it transitioned to more of a police action. And that's where the sensitive site exploitation started. So we would secure the target. Sometimes we may have additional what we would call enablers, people to help us, um, whether they had you know, some kind of specialty that we could bring in and maybe they were, um, you know, whatever it was, they would come in after the target was secure. And then we would start that um, gathering whatever evidence. I mean, if there were explosives, we would collect that. If there were weapons, we would take, if anybody was killed, we would obviously take pictures of what happened and where it came from and, uh, you know, why, you know, we, we had to kill that individual. Uh, and all of that was cataloged and turned over. And we, we did training both within the military and uh, we actually trained with law enforcement um, that, you know, we learned about a lot of these things working with them because it really did. It became more of a law enforcement function once the target was secure. And, um, you know, if you capture, we don't, we don't want to, you get information out of live people. 
So obviously, we want to capture people as much as we can. And from there, with evidence, we now are able to either prosecute or use that evidence against them to hopefully, you know, at the end of the day, we want more information. We, we want to get to the top people. And, um, and, and by having that evidence and stacked against them, that enabled us to gather more information. Which law enforcement agency trained you guys? Um, I think I'm going to leave that out for now. So, I mean, what the FBI with, was it? Uh, no. Okay. Okay. We're good. I just want to know because I, you know, then you guys would have transitioned to suits. <laughs> yeah, no, no. We work with uh, some different, you know, major law enforcement, uh, um, municipal, you know, big, big municipal uh, people who are dealing with a lot of crime. And it's no zero brothers. We still love you. Yeah, I still love you. But what the hell? Um, I, it's no secret, too, that a lot of guys that ended up going down to Guantanamo to assist. Some of those guys came from New York, L.A., you know, people who investigated lots of crimes. And um, you were talking about that, too. Uh, you know, just even uh, getting some of the training or dealing with people. But even though you guys were collecting a lot of people, how many percentage wise, um, how many people ended up going with the CIA? Uh, you know, I'm not really sure I remember those numbers. But I mean, but, it, you know, without giving anything away, but there were certain people that had an interest beyond just standard law enforcement. Uh, there were some people that were of interest somewhere up in another food chain, right? I'm sure. I'm sure they were. <laughs> you tact, you're being so tactful here. Yeah, here you go, Morgan. <laughs> Dude, I just want a trip to Guantanamo. By the way, that's Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is still down there. Um, Where he should be. And I still haven't brought yeah. him to trial after 22 years. Where it's fine. No, a yeah. good buddy of mine is trying to push that across the finish line. So let's let's hope they get it done. KSM. Um, well, let's let's go back to that now. So you guys, like I said, there was two functions. You, you got your assault function. Then if if the opportunity presented itself, you got the exploitation function. So now let's get, we've kind of set the groundwork. Let's start talking about you now. Let's start talking about this mission that obviously changed your life. Yeah, we were at the end of the deployment. Um, we were actually gearing up for the turnover from uh, the next deal team. They were on their way there. And uh, and we had, it, it had been a very... Um, Active deployment. We had done, uh, I believe, eighty direct action capture kill missions, which is a lot, um, and a very successful. But also, we had had a lot of close calls. Um, we had had, you know, we had had several guys wounded. You know, we had thankfully our troop had not lost anybody um, directly, but uh, obviously our sister troop had lost guys in Baghdad. We had had a lot of close calls. We had close calls with uh, uh, just missed IEDs. We entered a house that was rigged with explosives. And thank God, whoever was on the other end of the command wire was not paying attention uh, or it did not work because uh, we were all in the house that could have been detonated and killed all of us. Um, hey, uh, Jay, on those IEDs like that, when you say the command wire, were some of these like hardwired in or were some of these also cellular? No, this one was hardwired. Yeah, and we found it as we were searching the target. There were some signs that uh, something was amiss. Our EOD guy quickly recognized it, immediately found the hard wire running out the back of the house, and uh, and thankfully it did not go off. We ended up uh, falling back and dropped uh, two 500-pounders on that house, and there were a lot of secondary explosions. So, Jeez. Jeez. Man. Um, 
So yeah, we, we had had all these close calls and we were kind of wrapping up. We had packed everything up and we had decided, Hey, we're just gonna, um, we're just gonna hold the last couple of missions we had on the books till to do his turnover operations. Um, but on the, uh, just about one week or a couple of days prior to those guys coming in, we got word that the senior leader for Al Qaeda in the Anbar province was, um, gonna be in a specific place, uh, in Karma. Um, specific, specific place and time, what we call what became a time sensitive target. And, um, I didn't think that mission was going to go. Um, there was a lot of things about that mission. Um, some that are probably still classified that made me think this mission was not going to happen. So it was probably about four o'clock. I think when we did, you know, typically, we slept vampire hours, so we would get up, and the very first thing to do, leadership would have our 4 uh, p.m. morning meeting, and that's where we would talk about any potential missions or anything like that, and that's what was percolating. Um, so I went and you know got dinner or breakfast and then um, went and worked out, and uh, I was in the gym when one of the guys was like, hey, man, this mission's going. So we jocked up, uh, we got ready and, uh, and because of the timing on the mission, we ended up landing, um, what we call directly on the X, directly on the target, which is not our preferred method, but, um, we had to for this. Um, we landed my, uh, my, um, team leader and I, uh, it was kind of interesting that, that the helicopter actually landed backwards. Um, originally we were supposed to land where the opposite side of the helo was our breacher and point man and, and recce guys, but the helo came in and it was me and my team leader and probably our communicator that were sitting in the door with the stack of guys behind us. So we quickly, my team leader immediately recognized it and he was out the door. Uh, you know, I don't even think the helo had touched down yet. He was out the door running towards that front door which obviously when you're coming in on a helo, time is of the essence. So I was behind him. Uh, the door was open. Uh, we ended up uh, crashing it, uh, made entry, and nothing happened. I mean, we I don't think I've ever expected to get all shot up as much as I did on that target. Um, that target was only a couple hundred yards away from where we got into the really big firefight in June, where we had guys wounded and the women and children. Uh, it was probably only another few hundred yards away from where Mike Day and Petty Officer Clark Schwedler was killed. So it was definitely a very hot spot in that area. And um, we made entry and nothing happened. Um, we searched the building. We found a lot of activity uh, and, and started finding explosives and weapons buried in some of the outer buildings and the walls. Uh, but no people. Um, we had missed a guy. And that's, I mean, that's just the nature of the beast. You guys know that as well as I do. Um, so we thought it was going to be a quiet night. You know, at this point, it's about... I don't know, 2 a.m., 3 a.m. Um, the plan was we just were going to blow all the explosives in place uh, and then we were going to extract and that was going to be the night. But while we were sitting there, uh, the snipers started noticing a lot of activity on another house about 150 yards away. And they were just watching all this. And then they watched five individuals kind of run out the front door, run across the street and hide in some vegetation. So my boss came up to me and said, hey, man, uh, this is what we saw, you know, and we, we had seen this before. And, uh, the enemy's not always aware that we can see all that we can see the way we do business and said, hey, these guys ran. They're hiding. Obviously, they're hiding for a reason. 
let's let's go walk down, let's wrap them up, and let's find out who they are and what they know. So uh, so he said, hey, take your team and let's do this. So we did. How big's got, your team? So we we left with nine. So it was eight. It was seven seals, uh, my UOD guy, and uh, and an interpreter. Um, we we like I said, it was about 150 yards north of us. Um, and we started pushing through some pretty dense vegetation and I won't get into the, the tactical details, but we were doing things according to what we had done, uh, prior, what we had seen and how we had trained. Um, we, at this point had pushed a AC-130 gunship up above and we were asking, do you see anything? Do you see any weapons? And they were like, no, we don't see anything, you know, just individuals laying there. So we started pushing through. Man, super thick vegetation. It reminded me of like a bamboo grove. That's how thick it was, um, which totally negated your night vision goggles. You couldn't see anything other than a green blur. So my heart's pounding in my chest. Um, you know, and at one point I was like, man, are we, is this the right decision? I was like, man, that's just fear. Squash it. You know, we're, we're doing this according to plan. Keep pushing forward. Um, at one point the gunship said, Hey, you're going to miss these guys. You need to turn to the Northeast. So we did. Uh, but what happened is we weren't aware. Uh, my three guys on the left flank, uh, you know, we listen to different frequencies. We have the gunship frequency. We have our inner freak as a leadership freak. Uh, they were not um, listening on that gunship freak. We had all been on that. And for whatever reason, they didn't hear that call. So when we made that turn, they kept going straight. So now we realize this pretty quickly, but in that dense vegetation, you know, four or five steps. And now you're talking about you're a good 10, 15 yards away from each other in the dark, super dense vegetation with an unknown enemy force on the ground, technically in between us. So we quickly realized this was a really dangerous potential blue on blue situation. Guys on my right flank said, hey, man, I'm close to the edge of the field. Guys on the left flank said, hey, we're close to the left side. I said, okay, let's both push out. Let's move up to the north on the open end of the field, and then we'll push back down on the enemy. And we coordinated this with the gunship. So you were able to reestablish communications with the, the guys on your left flank then? We were. We were able to talk to them on the radio, identify you. Know, we all agreed, hey, we're separated, too dangerous to do this in the vegetation. So they pushed out. We pushed out. Um as we were so now now there's three so there's six of us on the right flank uh five seals and our interpreter and uh and as we are stepping out at this point i've come out of the vegetation and i'm I'm kind of up front at this point with our interpreter with one of our other guys behind me and i'm starting to move uh back towards the the west which is where our other guys were so i could get eyes on them um, but right as we started moving, we were maneuvering now, my last guy was coming out of the vegetation and he literally stepped on an enemy fighter. Um, and the enemy fighter tried to roll over and engage him and he, and he shot him and that triggered the ambush. So what we didn't know was those five guys were the last part of the security detail for this leader that we were after. We estimate there were 12 to 15 fighters. Uh, they had two PKM machine guns in that vegetation and 12 to 15 fighters. Um, so we, we, th their, their ambush line was set up, um, forward 
you know, to the north. And so we had come up behind it. And then unfortunately, because of the way we broke off, we walked right into it. So how did they avoid detection? Were they covered up with something to avoid uh, heat detection, uh, heat signatures, or is it just because of how dense everything was? Uh, you know, I'll let you guys decide what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, I know that's why I didn't know if that was part of their tactics, if they'd gotten to the point where they'd figured out how to um, um, do countermeasures, you know, with flare or things like that. I mean, some things have been reported open source, so I don't want to get into anything that's classified, but I didn't know if uh, these guys were adapting their tactics uh, as well. The enemy's smart. We always say the enemy gets a vote, and uh, on a regular basis, we kill off the dumb ones. There's a saying, there's a saying, if you're going to be, st- <laughs> if you're going to be stupid, you got to be tough. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, for whatever reason, yeah, we we could not see whether they had weapons or not, or the full extent of their their line. But we definitely felt it once we walked into it. I mean, the machine gun opened up. Uh, our medic was initially hit. He took a round right below the knee. Um, I was a little further down and out front, and I started engaging. Um, I'll be honest. My first thought was cease fire. Uh, and is actually what I was yelling out at first because I was, I knew from the angles we were at, you know, we're over on this Northeast corner. I didn't know where guys that had gotten separate on the West were. And all I'm thinking about is we're shooting back towards them. So I wasn't entirely sure we're shooting at them. Um, so I quickly realized that's ridiculous because yeah, I could definitely tell that this wasn't an M4 when that PKM opened up both PKMs. Um, Are PKM 7.62 or what caliber? Yeah, it's 7.62 by 54. So it's the larger. It's a nasty uh, round. A, yeah. It is a big bullet. It's it's the Russian or Chinese equivalent of the M60. So, um, so they had two PKMs that now were opening up on us. Um, our, our medic was down. One of our other guys ran forward and grabbed our medic and started dragging him back. Uh, the only thing behind us uh, to the north was thousands of yards of empty Iraqi desert. And there happened to be a large, like John Deere style tractor tire and one big tree that wasn't far from that. And uh, the guys fell back to that. My interpreter made it over to the tire. One of our guys fell behind the tree and the rest of the guys fell behind the tree. Um, I was still out front trying to lay down fire uh, when I got, um, stitched for the first time by that machine gun. So across my body armor, I took two rounds in the left elbow. Um, and, uh, which I thought shot my arm off in the, in the moment. And then, uh, did the armor do its job? Did it stop those ones that you took? I assume I never got my plate back. So I, I, yes, I mean, I didn't, I didn't suffer any injury here. Um, I, um, but yeah, I mean, I took what, at least eight rounds is what we know. I took rounds off my helmet. I had my left night vision tube shot off. I took a round off my gun. I took a round off my right side plate, two rounds in the elbow. Um, recognizing this is a really bad place to be, I, I tried to move back to the tire at this point, And that's when I caught around in the face. It hit me from behind, caught me right in front of the ear traveled through my nose, exited the right side of my nose, blew out my right cheekbone. What was left of my cheekbone broke and kicked out to the right, vaporized my orbital floor, broke all the bones above my eye, broke the head of my jaw, my jaw to my chin, and it knocked me out. And the guy saw me fall, so they thought I was dead. Um, 
so when I came to, and I don't know, we, we know, we estimate this firefight was 35 to 40 minutes. Um, we don't have all the footage from the entire firefight, but I've seen both, uh, the AC 130. They have the, the, some of the AC 130 footage and they also have some of the audio, uh, which I have seen and listened to, which is rather surreal. Um, and, uh, and then there's the drone footage that DOD has. But, um, we estimate it was 35 to 40 minutes. Uh, for this firefight when I, I, I don't know how long I was unconscious, um, probably five to 10 minutes, maybe. And I finally, when I came to, I was, I was laying flat on my back and, uh, and I recognized, um, that, um, laser beams were traveling over me. You know, I wasn't really thinking clearly at first. And, uh, and then I, you know, as, 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 uh, reality set in i I realized wow that's tracer fire so i literally was laying under this firefight that was occurring above me um so my first thought was okay well don't sit up um there was a lowland fire and i called out to my team leader at that point and he was like red holy shit you're still alive um and i was like yeah how long to the medevac because i knew i knew i was fucked up um and he was like five minutes I'm surprised you're still with the injuries you took to your face and stuff were, that they could understand you. You're still able to talk. You talked about hitting your jaw and everything, you know, the top of your jaw. Well, it, uh, so it broke my jaw and, but no, I was able to talk. Um, wow. I, um, I'll, I'll come back to this point about, um, blood loss, but, um, I was totally pinned down, so I couldn't get up and, and move back to where they were. I tried to get my tourniquet on, um, and this is a lesson learned. I try and tell anybody that's an operator, um, you know, when you get hit and you lose a lot of blood, you, you are not as strong. So you really need to train with your tourniquet for your ability to get it right arm, left arm, if you're laying on your stomach, on your back, on your side, whatever it is. Because I had fixed my tourniquet on the bottom of my body armor with three thick rubber bands, um, or maybe it was a top, a top. I carry it on the bottom now, but uh, I could not break those rubber bands. They were like the the heavy packing rubber bands we use for parachutes. I couldn't break it. I had, you know, I'd lost so much blood right off the bat that I was too weak to break it. Um, so I wasn't able to get my own tourniquet on. Um, so you know, I hey caution guys out there think about that think about every situation you may have to be able to get to your tourniquet um so i had to wait i just had to wait i I realized that hey you know i gotta let the guys win the firefight they can't rush out here and get me they'll get shot um so i just had to be patient so um finally my my team leader um tried to call in a fire mission from the gunship and the gunship initially said, no, there's no way. Uh, you guys are way dangerous. I was only 45 feet from the machine gun that had me pinned down. So this is way within danger close parameters. Meaning, um, for those that don't understand when we talk about danger closer, if you've heard that term, we know what the, both the explosive concussion is from a blast and the fragmentation radius. And in order for friendly forces not to be fragged or, or uh, hurt by the blast, we need to be outside of both of those things, which is danger close parameters. We know based on munitions, what we're using, 
Uh, obviously, a 500-pound JDAM has a much greater danger-close parameter than, you know, 40 Mike Mike. Um, so we were well within that. And the gunship said, no, you have to fall back. You've got to figure out a way. And my team leader was like, there is no way. You know, there's no place for us to go. I got, you know, two critically wounded uh, or three critically wounded. And uh, so a little bit more time went by. He called again. They said no. On the third time, he called and said, hey, look, there's not going to be anybody left. Uh, we're going to we're running out of ammo. And I got guys bleeding out. So at this point, they basically said to my team leader, hey, uh, it's on you. Like, you know, you they made him give his so JTAC in the military have a specific designator, meaning they have officially been through uh, it stands for Joint Tactical Air Controller. So they've been through the official military DOD training to be able to drop bombs or munitions from aircraft and understand everything about that. Uh, because before we had JTAC training, there were friendly fire incidents where we killed people. Um, so the, the DOD created the JTAC program, Joint Tactical Air Controller program. So every JTAC has a special designator. And they made him read off his designator in the middle of the firefight to to put the onus on him. Like, hey, you understand what's happening here. We're bringing fire in directly on your position. You're probably going to die. Uh, and you have to take responsibility for that. And he did. And, uh, and then he, he, the way he coordinated that, he did a great job and I'll never forget, man, I was, I was laying there and he yelled out incoming and there is a delay. Um, the aircraft flies at a specific altitude that's fairly high. And when the gun goes off, there's a delay. It takes time for those rounds to travel the thousands and thousands of feet. Um, and I remember it going off and the machine gun still chunking away and all of a sudden it, it hit right in front of us and blew up over us and uh all of a sudden that machine gun went cold and that dude started yelling out Allah, and i remember thinking to myself stand by bro because here he comes and sure enough man next rounds came in right after that and that guy was out that machine gun didn't come up again i think they took out the other machine gun um in the Lowland fire, my team leader ran forward and got me and dragged me back to the tire. He got a tourniquet on my arm and they packed my face. Um, so I, I, I owe my life to my teammates, my team leader, that gunship. Um, we ended up calling in, I think, at least four fire missions before the medevac came in. Um, when the medevac came in, it landed about 75 yards from us. And, uh, and, my team leader started to drag me, which I, I hadn't, I felt a lot of pain when I was shot in the arm, but once I was shot in the face, I didn't feel any pain. Um, but once he started dragging me, I felt all the pain and I was like, stop, like, stop, let me, let me get up. And I got him to help me get up. I thought my arm had been shot off, uh, cause I couldn't feel it. I couldn't feel anything. I think I might've been laying on it or something, but when I would reach over, I didn't feel it. It had killed all the nerves. And I told him, and I also took my helmet off in the uh, firefight. Um, oh, you guys don't have you guys don't have video, but that's uh, that's the round I took through my helmet. So um, for everybody that was looking, uh, you've got one of the older style helmets, but it's coming in right above. Um, wow, on the left side. Yep, which is why my my skull artwork now has that bullet hole in the forehead, which thankfully was not in my forehead. But uh, I took my helmet off and I told my team leader, I said, hey, grab my arm, grab my helmet. I'm going to the helicopter. 
And, uh, and I, I ended up walking those 75 yards to the helicopter. And I will never forget. I, I forever had this seared into my mind. I remember walking hunched over and literally watching the blood pour out of my face. Um, as I walked to that helicopter and, and the last, you know, it's interesting what sears in your mind. I got to the helicopter and there's a, there's a metal handle on the right side of the 60, right by the door gunner. And like, I can clearly remember grabbing that handle and seeing my gloved hand with blood on it. Um, like that seared into my memory and I managed to get on the helicopter. They pushed me up against the opposite side door, uh, next to the other door gunner. And then they got our other two guys in the helicopter. Um, and, uh, they took us to, um, Baghdad. Balad was typically where they want to take head injuries, but we were so critical that Baghdad was closer. And, uh, 160th crew flew the rotors off to get us to Baghdad. Um, because there were three of us, this helicopter was only configured for two and, uh, they couldn't shut the door. And so you've got me who's been shot multiple times. You've got, uh, Maddie who's been shot. Three times you've got our medic, uh, Luke, who um, almost had his leg severed from the PKM round that hit him below the knee. So we're bleeding all over the place. And what I later met these 160th guys a couple of years later, and they told me that what happened because the doors couldn't shut created this mist of blood inside the helicopter. So by the time they landed at, uh, at Baghdad, like everybody's coated in blood. And uh, they said it took them weeks to get the blood out from every crack and crevice. It was all in the knobs. And they didn't know if we survived. They literally offloaded us and they, they took us. Had to get back in the fight. Yeah, and, that's, and they took you- – I was going to say, you bring up a really good uh, thing to a lot of You mentioned it, but it's the 160th, the Special Operations Aviation Regiment. Um, I mean, these guys, the Night Stalkers, I mean, just legendary for some of the stuff they've been able to do. Yeah, those guys were amazing. I worked with them throughout uh, my career, and I owe my life to them um, that night. I mean, that 160th crew did an amazing job. Uh, that and which branch are they, by the way? Which branch are they? That Air is, Force. Uh, <laughs> it's U.S. Army. Hey, man, I, I speak Army. Army. I support Same my Army, Army brethren. Yeah. So, so I support my Army brethren right up until the Army-Navy game. And then yeah. Navy. <laughs> then it's off for three hours. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> That's an interesting, and um, why is it that they couldn't get the doors closed? Was somebody hanging out um, or? Uh... Yeah, there wasn't enough room. So you had at least uh, one of our teammates went with us uh, to accompany us to Baghdad. And then you had two, you had three wounded guys, myself and the other two guys. And both other guys had leg injuries. So they're trying to lay them out in the helicopter and they were unable to shut the door because of that. So um, what, a, what a harrowing story. I'm, I'm sitting here with goosebumps I swear, man, you, you get into this and you I can imagine in my mind, I can picture, I've read this in your book, but then you telling it, you can just picture in, the, in, in your mind how dangerous. I mean, I can't think of a, a stronger word. And for you guys to come out alive is just, it's God sent, man. I mean, it's a miracle you guys got out of there. And it's in your face too. You can watch as you're talking. I mean, I watch your eyes and I watch what you're doing and you see just the, it's almost like I see the images you're seeing not really, but I mean, when you talk about reaching up, grabbing, seeing what's out there on the battlefield, looking for your tourniquet, I mean, you, the visuals are just so powerful um, from what you're describing there. It's like, and, and it had to be, you've got that much fire going over you and those people out there. Um, uh, uh, there's no, I mean, it's sorry, man, there's no words for it. 
Well, I mean, the words are, um, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for a, that gunship, um, and rightfully so that gunship was awarded, um, uh, the main leadership, the gunner, uh, your, your targeting officer, they were all awarded the, defense, the, uh, uh, distinguished flying cross for that night. And everybody else on that mission received the, uh, uh, an air medal for that night, rightfully so. Our guys, I wanted my team leader. Uh, I recommended him for a Navy cross. It got downgraded to a silver star, um, which I still think he deserves a Navy cross, which I'm going to go back and try and see if we can do that. And some of our, uh, our, our, uh, one of our guys who got our medic, he earned, he got a silver star also, but I think our other guys deserve more. And I think our, my team leader, who I owe my life to definitely deserves a Navy cross. So the this gunship, were they firing 40 mic mics you were talking about? I mean, that, that had, you talk about accuracy from that distance. I mean, cause it's like if they, if they put it right on target, you're going to, you're going to get hit. So it's almost like they had to gauge it so that this guy's in the blast radius and you're like, they moved the X over, as you were saying, they moved the X over enough to where it could take these guys out, but not hit you. Yeah, it was crazy. Uh, I mean, that night in June, we called fire in on that house. We were only 60 yards away. We were up on the rooftop of the next house we had fallen back to. So, I mean, we were right on the edge of danger close. So to watch that occur and then literally to be laying there and have the rounds hit right in front of you. Um, so I don't know. You know, I don't know why we're still here. Uh, obviously, very fortunate. You know, just and and so we've had, we've done a complete circle here because when we started this, we talked about when you're younger and, and you hadn't reached your maturity level yet. And I mean this in all sincerity. I, I don't mean to for any of this to be funny. Uh, where in the beginning, if you survived that, that would have been look what Jason did. But through you know the humanity within the military service and some foresight on some officials' parts to send you to Ranger School, which you told us that's where you learned leadership. That's where you grew up at. And now, you know, to hear, to hear you tell your story here, and you're giving credit to the people that kept you alive. And it, it, wasn't, it wasn't the gunship, singularly. It wasn't the, air, the helicopter crew that got you out. It wasn't your team leader that, you know, came in and helped you get out. That was shocked that you were still alive. It was a combination of everything. But to, to, I guess what I'm trying to say here is to hear you say now, they got credit and they deserve credit. And this is what this person did to save me. And all these people saved me were in the beginning would have been, look what Jason did. I went in and kicked the devil's ass and walked away from it. God bless you, brother. It's uh, I, Well, on the medical team, I mean, you know, the, 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 I mean, I owe my life to the amazing medical team and what they did. So, nah, I, I didn't, I didn't do a whole lot in that gunfight. I got, I got shot up. <laughs> well, you're smart enough to not raise up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're smart enough to say, I'm laying, I'm keeping down here. Um, but let's talk a little bit about that too, the recovery, the process of recovery. Um, how, what, I mean, you're first in Baghdad, right? So what, what's the process of recovery look like for you from Baghdad? Where do you go? I mean, how long does it take before you're um, back in the U.S.? You know, kind of give us the the idea of what it's like to recover from this. So um, I, I woke in Baghdad, uh, or I came out of the first surgery where they saved my life, and uh, and I didn't really think I was going to make it. Um, you know, definitely. You know, I, I in the book I talk about stay awake, stay alive, and I think you know I called out to the big man. I think he, you know, between the amazing medical staff, I think a little bit of just 
willpower. And then obviously, I think he had the ultimate say in that. So when I came to, I'll be honest, I was so euphoric that I was still alive. Like, that was amazing. Um, uh, my commanding officer and command master chief were there in Baghdad. And I, I asked, well, the first thing I remember is I tried to ask him a question. I couldn't. I, like, I tried to say something. And the nurse like, hey, you're trached. You're not going to be able to talk. You're, you're wired shut and you're trached. Um, so I said, okay, give me a piece of paper. And I, and I asked three questions. I said, uh, I said, are my guys okay? Um, has my wife been notified? And, you know, levity plays such a big deal. You guys know. And I said, do I still look pretty? Um, <laughs> and, uh, and how did they answer? So my, yes, know, yes, said, no. Yeah. The, the guys are good. <laughs> they're both out of surgery and, and they're fine. They said, yes, I spoke to your wife myself. I told her you're the luckiest guy I know. And he said, and no, you definitely do not. You, you, he said, you were, yeah, this will probably be an improvement. <laughs> so, um, was your medic able to keep his leg? Yeah. Yeah. He actually had what's called drop foot. Uh, so he was never able to repair that, but he ended up wearing a brace and he did a couple more deployments before he got out of the military. And now he's, he's in the business world doing great. So, um, but uh, from Baghdad, uh, they moved me to Balad, uh, and I had more surgeries in Balad, and, and I was in and out of consciousness during these times. And then they flew me to Lonstool. Uh, I had a couple more surgeries in Lonstool, and then they flew me home uh, on an ICU medevac flight. And uh, what's amazing is that process was 96 hours. So I was wounded early uh, American time. It would have been, I think we figured out Wednesday night, Iraq time. It was early Thursday morning. Um, coincidentally, my wife and I did the math. She was actually at a, uh, um, a post-deployment meeting for the spouses at the time I was getting all shot up. And they were talking about this was a really hard deployment. And they were talking about post-traumatic stress. And she was like, I don't need to know about that. You know, Jay's going to be fine. And literally right during that conversation, I was getting shot up. Uh, but I was home to Bethesda by Sunday night. So a 96-hour turnaround from – so what an amazing medical system that we have created. Uh, and a lot of that's a big testament to Robert Gates, the way he laid out the, the, the medevac system both in Iraq and Afghanistan to be able to get us out and then this flow. Um, cause obviously they want to get us home as quickly as they can. Um, you know, so four surgeries in 96 hours. Yeah, at least. Wow, man. And, and then the surgeries and then in between that moving you from, like you said, Baghdad to Balad, uh, Balad to Germany, right? Correct. And then Germany back here. Oh. You know, I tell you what, um, there's there's always a lot of things being said, but the one thing you always I was always impressed with with the military, and the, my, this goes back. My dad was World War II and a Vietnam vet, and I and I read a lot. I mean, of history. I just go back and think about all the planning that went into stuff like World War II, the things they had to think of, you know, and all the lessons learned, the logistics lessons, and everything. And it's like you move forward, and it's forward deploy, and it's like now when you're thinking about this, it's like I'll tell you what. Um, I tell you who has career. Some of the people who do logistics in the army, they come out and they work for FedEx or UPS. They just like crush it. It's like, ah, get a packet from here to there. No problem. I once brought a guy back from Baghdad, four operations, 
three cities, 96 hours, you yep. know? Yep. And, and, and with all the ICU equipment I needed, and that wasn't the only one. That plane was packed. There was probably at least... 15 of us who were in ICU beds, and then, I don't know, 30 or 40 who were ambulatory on that plane on a C-141 out of a lawn stool. Well, with the damage to your eye and your orbital socket, did you keep the sight in your right eye? I did. It got damaged. Um, Amazingly, though, the optic nerve was not damaged, and the doctors were flabbergasted by that. Um, What ended up happening... Uh, they had to totally rebuild. My orbital floor was gone, vaporized. Uh, the bullet, uh, when it hit me and it traveled, it went, uh, it came in right in front of my ear and it basically took off most of my nose. It traveled right under my eye. Um, the eye fell into this newfound hole. Um, so they, when they put it back, um, they put a, a temporary orbital floor of titanium um, later they tried to reconstruct that and then that had issues. Ultimately they ended up peeling off a part of my skull, a layer of my skull, and that became my new orbital floor. Um, but the eye, um, wouldn't align. So it took, I don't know, at least a year and a great surgeon at, at Johns Hopkins who was able to realign my eyes back. And I still have some issues with double vision. Um, if I'm looking on a straight plane, I'm good. If I glance to the right or the left, I get, or even up, I get double vision. But, you know, so what? Turn your head. So Better than not being able to see. Yeah. Well, in fact, it reminds me, we uh, one of his friends, Steve's friends, a guy named Joe Pierce DEA, he was in one of the fast teams was over in Afghanistan. He took a round through the head, temple, like basically temple to temple. They thought he was dead, but he got up and he got on there. He's blind now. I mean, it's it, he's, he's tried to recover, but it, like you say, it's just amazing what they can do. Um, but mm-hmm. to that point, you're now you're in the recovery. We want to talk about something that has become very famous, and that's the sign. When did the sign? Um, when did you get the sign about the sign? And did you listen to Ace of Base about I saw the sign? You know, or <laughs> how did this come? How did this come about? Um, so the sign, uh, I did listen to a lot of music. That was one of the things. I, I am a huge fan of music. I don't play any instruments, um, but I love music. And uh, so it is funny that you say that because that was one of the very first things I asked for. As a matter of fact, I, when I was in Balad, I made them go find my iPhone and speakers. And, uh, and the, the, the ICU did not like us that I was blaring tool in the ICU. They tried to shut it down and, you know, my teammates chased them away. Uh, but when I got to the hospital in Bethesda, I had the same thing set up and, and we listened to everything. So, uh, and the nurse always liked it. They always liked coming to my room because we had good music. So, uh, but, um, the sign came about probably about a week after I'd been back. I and mean, I don't know the, the exact timeline, what day, but, uh, and I, and I will admit, and I talked to a lot of people about this, that, that, you know, I speak on getting off the X and the overcome mindset and, and, Time is relative. You know, I'd love to tell you that I got to the hospital and was like, man, I'm going to crush this. It took a few days. I mean, there was a lot of, holy shit, where do I go from here? Um, you know, I, I was so weak from the blood loss, I couldn't even get out of bed. I had the nurses help me um, use the bathroom. Um, they were talking about amputating my arm. I had no use to my left hand. Uh, they told me from the nerve damage. Um, I, I, so I ended up taking two rounds. I took a, I took a round right here in the lower, 
uh, bicep, and I took a round on the inside of my forearm, and uh, they exited. You know, they exited the, the backside of my arm, which just destroyed my elbow. And uh, the doctor said, you know, there's no way we can repair this. Um, you know, they they were thinking about amputating my arm above the elbow. And uh, the only thing that stopped it is the head orthopedic surgeon in Bethesda happened to be a former SEAL. And uh, he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure out how to save your arm. So I owe my arm to him, to Dan Belayek. So shout out to you, Dan. But um, this is all the information they're inundating me with, all this negative information. You know, it's going to take years to put you back together. And I was struggling with all of that. And uh, I don't know, at, at some point, probably a week later, I had had... Um, I had some people that came into the room and they were just talking about what a shame, what a pity, you know, it's so sad, the, the military hospital, and they are. Military hospitals during the time of war are a really hard place to be. Um, you know, you got young, super banged up individuals who are burned and shot and broken and missing limbs and traumatic brain injuries. And, um, and uh, these individuals were basically overwhelmed by that and were talking about that. and they were often themselves in my room having this conversation, but I overheard it. And when they left, I remember thinking to myself, like, man, is that me? Like, is that truly who I am now? Am I, um, am I this broken veteran that's never going to be successful again? Am I going to be like this? Um, I don't know, this drunk or drug addict that, you know, homeless and is never successful, you know, like, like Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump, you know, hookers and booze, Lieutenant Dan. And, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. One of my favorite cur. I'm sorry. I just, I do that to my wife all the time. She'll be, so I gave her my Lieutenant Dan wave, you know, from Forrest, Lieutenant Dan, Lieutenant Dan, you know, what a great, that, Gary Sinise though, you mentioned, you know, what a, what a great guy, what a great movie. He is. I'm an ambassador for his foundation now. Gary is absolutely amazing. Probably one of the more genuine people you will meet. The Lieutenant Dan band. That's an awesome thing. So, um, yeah, I just, you know, it's funny. People will, um, I call it, you know, they'll put you in the victim box. And uh, I remember thinking to myself, wait a minute, like, you just walked the hardest path you've ever walked. A lot of people think that my... um, my injuries were the hardest thing I've ever been through. But really, my leadership failure and building myself back up was the hardest thing I've ever been through. And I had just finished this journey. And I was like, dude, you've been through this before. Like, the, the, this situation right now is no different. Uh, you just need to follow the same principles and, and, and lead and choose to drive forward. And I told my wife when uh, she came back in the room, I said, hey, from this point forward, I will not feel sorry for myself. There's no pity allowed in this room. And I wrote out the sign straight there. It was a straight stream of consciousness. And uh, the sign said, attention to all who enter here. If you're coming in this room with sadness or sorrow, go elsewhere. The wounds I received, I got a job that I love, doing it for people that I love, defending the freedom of the country that I deeply love. I will make a full recovery. What is full? That's the absolute utmost physically. I have the ability to recover. And I'm going to push that about 20% further through sheer mental tenacity. This room you're about to enter is a room of fun, optimism, and intense rapid recall. If you're not prepared for that, go elsewhere. And, um, you know, we, we signed it. The original sign was on a regular piece of paper. Um, but several days later, somebody missed it. So I told my wife, I said, Hey, I need something bigger and brighter to put this on. And she went down to the exchange and found that 
big orange piece of paper and or poster board and we transcribed it word for word onto that and from there it took on a life of its own it uh it was on all the national media um people started blogging about it um it earned me an invitation to the white house to meet president bush to date it's been uh who who signed it and i didn't keep it it now hangs in the wounded ward at walter reed um it's been written about in books um, you know, documentaries. So it is pretty amazing. I've had so many people from across the country who have put it on their hospital door with cancer or they've been in an accident or their kid's been in an accident. So it's pretty amazing the impact of that side now. Well, a guy we mentioned at the beginning, at the beginning of the podcast was uh, TJ Webb, police officer that uh, used your sign to motivate himself, the Connecticut police officer. I think you've since met him, but uh, you've affected people that, you know, positively that you had no clue that you were just giving your personal opinion there, but it's had so much positive effect on so many people. I like the way you signed it though. It says from the management and then there's the trident just bam. And so, so the interesting thing is I did not, that was not, I didn't do that. Um, a teammate of mine who had come to the room took his trident off and tacked it into the door. Uh, and I got to tell you, it was an amazing moment for me because uh, here's a guy who had failed and at one point was told, you don't measure up and we're going to take your trident to come full circle uh, and have the team. My, you know, obviously my teammates said, you know what, dude, you set the example. And, you know, I'm not perfect. I'm not the greatest seal out there. You'll never, ever hear me say that. I got a lot of teammates who are no longer here who are far better than me. But that was a, it was a huge moment for me to come full circle. And, uh, and, and I don't even remember who did it. I don't even remember what teammate it was, but I appreciate them. And uh, it was their trident they tacked into the door. Man, when your peers accept you, you know you've made it. Well, I love it. That was the ultimate exclamation point. It's like, fuck yeah. Bam. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, look, I mean, we, we could go on for a long time. Cause, and the other thing, too, is we d- we've done this in two parts because we you had some commitments. So we've got to honor your commitments. you got something coming up here. But, you know, just, just from us, people can't see this, this, me saluting you. And we salute you not only for you, but for everybody who's gone before you, those who we will not have a drink with tonight, but we will have a drink in their honor. Um, and I just, I mean, I this stuff just gets to me because uh, – you look at the people who have sacrificed so much and the people who sacrifice so much always ask for so little in return. Uh, they're, they're not the ones out there saying, gimme, gimme, gimme. They ask for very little, but the thing we do owe you um, is a debt that can never be repaid. So, yeah, and, and before we go, Jason, I just want to recognize Thank Erica, you uh, your wife for sticking by your side. Cause it doesn't always happen. You know, uh, Joe Pierasante, who we was just talking about was shot through the head. His wife couldn't handle it. Yeah. She left him. So, Erica, hats off to you, lady. Go ahead. That is such a common thing. Uh, A lot of people don't, I mean, the divorce rate in special operations is through the roof. The divorce rate in the wounded warrior community is through the roof. Um, And, man, a lot of people don't realize in the Trident, I tell Erica our our whole story because I wanted people to see what an amazing person she is. And, uh, and we are still together, strong, have amazing kids. We've, we've run a bu- you know, multiple businesses together. We still do it. Um, so it's become such a topic of conversation. I'm excited. This will be the first podcast I announced this, but we are, uh, signing a deal with Harper Collins for a relationship book we will release in January 24. Ooh. Um, and, uh, we are bra- 
making news, folks, exclusive to Game of Crimes. There you go. Yeah, there you go. that's right. So uh, for any of you out there who are like, man, how did you do it? We're not, you know, I'm not, we're not special. It's just, you know, there was, we, 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 I think we approached our marriage like a mission. And Erica had a very kind of military Spartan life mindset. And we've applied that and, you know, we've been able to, to navigate all these hard roads and problems. Well, I see waters. the sign. The sign is a, is a kind of a metaphor for the marriage, right? If you're going to enter into this marriage, if you're going to come here, I mean. Commit. Yep. Yeah. Commit. Yeah, it is, and we both said that at the very beginning. We both had come from families that were divorced. And when we went into this marriage, we said, never. Death. That's it. Folks, you got you got to check out Re, uh, JasonRedmond.com. Uh, you'll see what all he's up to now. There's so much, and, and we're getting into his time here. We know we got he's got other other commitments. But uh, Erica, proud of you. Probably should have mentioned you at the beginning because he just kind of followed in your shadows. The way I look at it, <laughs> you know, I I think we all married up. So. Oh, yeah. yeah. And let's not let's finish up with your book. So, folks, you got to go there. We'll put it on our book page and we'll put a link to his The Trident, The Forging and Reforging of a Navy SEAL Leader. Um, also, Overcome, uh, which is you've got books that are required reading now. Uh, I believe the, the the Trident is required reading um, and for, yeah, yeah, both, for leadership. Uh, Navy, Marine Corps and the Coast Guard uh, put both uh, both books in, in different areas. Is the Marine version come with crayons and pictures they can color in? No, it's a pop-up book. Pop-up book. <laughs> there you see. You're thinking of these guys. Thank you so well, much. See, well, see, they didn't even, give well, them, didn't even give them to the Army, right? Because there's not enough pictures in either one of the books. Right, right. Yeah. And the Marines, you know, love you guys. You know, I'll eat a crayon any day with you fellas. <laughs> well, hey, look, pal, let's bring this to a close. But first yeah. of all, thank you so much for being generous with your time. Uh, and seriously, this is us saluting you. Thank you for your gravity. But biggest thing, thanks for the lessons. You, you're here for a reason. It was not your day to die, brother. And the reason why is because you're here to teach the next generation of leaders what it's really like to lead. So uh, this is us saluting you. You stay safe, Murph. Yeah, I, I got to say a couple words here. Once you 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 set the freaking standard, brother, for other people to follow. That, as we all know, that doesn't happen in all the occupations, especially the danger occupations. So. Uh, thank you for the leadership lessons that you're providing now for being so humble and transparent about your story. People don't like to tell bad things about themselves, but you've you've laid everything out on the line, which that's what makes this such a good book to read. I highly recommend the Trident. and I read it. It only took me about three years to read it, but I'm you know I'm kind of a slow reader. But he did include some pictures. No, it's one of those books you can't put down. Seriously, I mean it's it's a big ass book. But, I mean, you can read it in just a couple of days because it is that good. So, thank you for your service to our country. God bless you. God bless Erica, uh, your children. If there's anything that Morgan and I or Game of Crimes can ever do for you, brother, we're there for you. Well, let's come back when this new relationship book and we can talk about because, man, God, God knows in law enforcement, fire, and the military, we all struggle with relationships. We do. You will be back. Yeah. Okay. Don't go anywhere. Um Everybody else, stay tuned for the debrief. And my last final words, go Army, beat Navy. Oh, God. Well, you know, just the sign, the whole thing about the sign, the way he tied it in, the way TJ Webb talked about it, which really gave us a lot to talk about with him. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm telling you, it just, I mean, here's the thing. This is a guy who humbled himself. He finally realized that, hey, look. It's not all the, about me. 
in the teams, as they call it, in the teams, your reputation precedes you. And he was getting a reputation for being a hot dog, you know, John waning it, doing it all by himself. And part of his punishment, growth opportunity, was being sent to Ranger School, where Ranger School taught you about leadership. So, I mean, what, I mean, just, and the fact he spent this time with us, carved out time, actually, folks, what I should have told you um, beforehand, we had some technical difficulties. Some of the audio kind of got garbled. We had to fix it. It was nothing don't know what happened, but um, he he gr- graciously came back a second day so we could finish up um, and just gave his time. And just, by the way, both you and him gave me the birds, so I feel honored uh, to be double flipped. <laughs> we both gave you doubles. You gave me doubles. <laughs> That's right. The sign on the door. I got a sign for you, too. He calls it the sign on the door. I got a sign for you, too. I tell you what, and and that sign, if you, if you I, I'm sure you... You heard about it, or if you just heard about it on the podcast, go look at his website. It's jasonredmond.com, and look at the sign. Because when you mentioned it just now, I got goosebumps all over again. And it's free to download, Murph. That's your word, free. It's free to download. Yeah, baby. Free, free, I love, free. Nothing wrong with free. And 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 the relationship with uh, TJ Webb is just phenomenal. Uh, we brought that up to him, and, and he remembered TJ. And I know it meant so much to TJ as well. So, And I'm sure TJ's listening. So thank you, brother. Uh, and thank both of you guys for surviving, you know, for, for sacrificing yourselves for our country, for our safety, for our freedom, whether it's in the international or the domestic arenas. Uh, a true honor to have a true American hero on here. Go check out his books. You're going to love The Titan. It, when I started reading it, I couldn't put it down. The Trident. You said The Titan. The Trident. The Titan Sorry, is yeah. a robot. The Trident. But you, you know what I meant. The Trident. <laughs> and T-R-I- by the way, his books are required reading now at the academies and in some of the military uh, uh, colleges, war colleges. So that's Fantastic. what kind of an impact it had. And and you know what? He's out on the speaking circuit. He's a motivational speaker. So uh, check out his website if you're in a corporate event or, or uh, you know, if, you're, if your company is, gonna, is looking for speakers, highly recommend Jason Redmond. And I know what we got out of him for our time. You guys will definitely get that out of it. So anyway, guys, we hope you enjoyed that. Head on over to Apple Podcast or head on over to Spotify and Apple. Uh, hit those five stars. It really helps us a lot. Especially tell us what you thought about Jason, his story, uh, his struggles, because I think a lot of you can identify with that. Also, head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com for more information about the show and the links to his books. You can find them anywhere, uh, and even including on our site. Follow us on that thing they call social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook, and the Instagram. Also, Game of Crimes fans, just type that into your search bar in Facebook. Uh, get with Sandy Salvato, our uh, Iron, well, the Velvet Glove, the Iron Maiden with the Velvet Glove, the Mafia Queen. Answer a couple questions, get in there. We have a lot of more fun discussions uh, behind the scenes there. Um, also, head on over to Patreon, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Do we, like I said, you can't make this shit up. Uh, this episode was funny. We're going to do the Long Island serial killer for our case of the month. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we got to think, too, about what we want to do for our Narcometer review. That's coming up as well, too, as uh, 911, what's your emergency? Uh, you know, we got a lot of good things coming up. So head on over there. Right, Murph? Right, 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 right. Absolutely. Patreon's the place you got to be. Uh, we get a little bit more um, personal, I guess. We, you know, we, we stay apolitical here on the podcast, but on Patreon, we... <laughs> you ask for opinions, we give them to you. Well, and they did. On the Q&A, we had a lot of good questions, which allowed us to discuss some political things about our beliefs, but we don't voice those on people. Our our, our idea is, hey, look, we simply tell the stories. Um, you guys are smart enough uh, you know, to do your own research and come to your own conclusions. But that being said, with the speaking of bringing things to a conclusion, here is the conclusion of this conclusion, which concludes this episode, Murph. So how do we do that? We say, by thank you guys for playing. Once again, the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all. The Game of Crimes. 